Hey, it's Sunny Days. I am the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Listen, I am a podcast her, okay, H-E-R, an activist, a thought leader, pin pusher, and lover of poodles. And I'm Lisa Davis, MPH. I am a lover of social justice, healthy living, dogs, and I love being the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Now is the time for honest, unfiltered conversations, for authentic voices and their stories, and for connection. Join us as we confront the moment head on with this podcast. It is passionate. It is real as lives behind the headlines. Active allyship, it's more than a hashtag. And listen, it goes beyond the likes, the retweets, and the hashtags, making space for the vital dialogue necessary for racial justice. And now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. And I'm Sunny Days. So glad you're listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Sunny, I hear that you're having a lot of fun this weekend. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about what's going on. So, uh, I am in Deep Creek, Maryland, and it's an annual, what we call a sister circle retreat. And there, like a total of 10 of us in the sister circle. And I say 10, um, even though one of our uh, sisters passed from breast cancer some years oh, ago, but we started out with 10 of us. And so we make this, you know, trip every year with the exception of last year because of COVID. And, you know, we come, we cook, we have libations, we chat we do what we do what women do like when we have this time to ourselves and so let me say in advance if you hear some laughter my apologies i mean you know i've asked the ladies to give me about an hour or so and they have agreed but just in the event you hear some random talking or laughter that's the ladies enjoying themselves so yes well i think that's great you know it's funny i i so need a getaway last week i took my pitbull blue And we went out for six hours and we went to this beautiful town by the ocean and we walked around and he got so much love and attention. It's nice to see that at least with some people attitudes are changing or I mean, he's just such an absolute love. It's hard not to just go, oh my God, what a beautiful dog. And I felt like I went on vacation. It was like one day away, just me and Blue. I was like, I could get used to this. I think today, (laughs) I'm hoping that my my daughter and my husband decide to have a daughter-father day, and uh, I can just take Blue again somewhere else. Like, it's just just having that space, whether it's with a group of women that you love or just with your dog, just to be away and and to experience different things. And I love talking to strangers. Like, and when you have a dog, people talk to you. Oh yeah. Well, I think people talk to the, to the dogs really like, you know, with my boys, people (laughs) are so fascinated with them, right? They're like, Oh my God. Hi. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm the human just attached to them. So I totally get it. Like your mental health, however that works. Uh, for you, whether it's with Blue, <clears throat> excuse me, or me on a trip with the ladies, it's just you got to do what you got to do. You got to take time out. Yeah, you really do. Well, we have got a fantastic guest today, John Blake. He's a senior writer and producer at CNN.com. And he wrote this article that I thought, or I should say we thought was, wow, just incredible. White Supremacy with a Tan. Uh, it was on September 4th, 2021. John joins us now. Hi, John. Hi, thank you for inviting me. 
It's so good to have you on. Yes, welcome. So, John, as we do with all of our guests, the very first question, uh, which I'm excited really to hear your response to it after reading the article, is what were you marinated in? Well, I was, uh, I guess I was uh, marinated in a lot of different sauces because uh, I grew up in West Baltimore uh, in a very famous neighborhood. Uh, It's become like this symbol for racial division and also black anger. It's uh it's the same neighborhood where the HBO series The Wire was filmed. And it's also the epicenter for the Freddie Gray race riot or rebellion in 2015. So I literally grew up in that neighborhood where there was a lot of uh there was a lot of poverty, there was violence, and there was a tremendous hostility toward white people in that neighborhood. Um but would was different about my story. One of the sauces in my story is that I grew up in this neighborhood with that type of racial hostility toward white people, but I also had a white mother. And so that, and I had a white mother who came from a family that didn't like black people. Wow. So kind of, kind of felt caught between these two kind of these cross currents. And then as I got older, my father married a woman from South America so I was exposed to Latin culture. And my wife, for example, is from Central America. And so I have a lot of different um, racial experiences, and they've kind of formed me. And it went a lot into the writing of that article that you just mentioned, White Supremacy with the Tan. That's amazing. I mean, when I read the article and I saw your background, I was so fascinated because you're really actually able to write this article from a lived experience, not just based on data, not just based right. on research, but actually having lived the experience, which I think is so important. Like I believe that with everything that when you speak to um, racial inequities or just this, the space that we're in, right. With this undercurrent and then the evils of racism, it's easy to speculate if you have right. not walked in the shoes of racism, but to have a lived experience such as you, I, I think that's amazing. Lisa, did you, or John, did you want to follow up? Yeah, I, I think that's really important um, um, because I found that I can draw upon those experiences and it gives more authority to what I write. But it's not only the lived experience of, you know, growing up black in this kind of neighborhood. But also when you have a white family that they have been also, I mean, frankly, they have racist beliefs themselves. And you have to find a way to love people who have racism within them and sometimes are in denial about it. That has really helped me as a human being, help me understand some of the people who really dislike me or it helped me understand a lot of the racial issues too. So, for example, if I'm trying to reconcile with one white family, um, I tell people all these racial reconciliation workshops I've attended, all the books I've read by, about white fragility, all that. When it came to that, those things were of limited use. That when I had to reconcile with them and get to know people, it's like it had to. I had to use different muscles, and that takes times, and it takes relationships. And I have this theory that what changes people is not so much information, but relationships. And I was blessed to have those kind of relationships with the white side of my family and help me, I think, hopefully become a better person. Yeah. And, and I would think help them become better people, I hope. 
that's what they tell me. So yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, yeah. We've we've come a long way uh, because I didn't meet my mother until I was seventeen. Oh, I didn't even. Okay. Yeah, I didn't even know she was alive. I didn't meet anybody from that side of the family till I was older. And of course, when I met her, I was very angry. I didn't want anything to do with them. So we had to spend years trying to build this relationship. And it, it, I learned a lot about myself in the process, too. Wow. Talk about textures and layers and just the nuances of navigating that the newness, if you will, of that relationship. Wow. Now, were you raised by your dad then or grandparents? It's kind of strange. Uh, I, I was raised primarily in foster homes. And uh, so I, I have a brother. We're not even a year apart. So we grew up primarily in foster homes in West Baltimore. But I was rooted in my father's black family. And I stayed with an aunt on the weekend who became my mother figure. And she was the one that really encouraged me to read and to write and do well in school. So so that was another challenge, too, to, to kind of grow up in the foster homes. Your way, My father spent most of his time overseas because he was a merchant marine. Mm. So most of my time... I didn't know if my mother, I didn't know where she was. I didn't know if she was alive. I didn't even know what she looked like. And then my father was away. So I wasn't around my mother or father for, for a large part of my childhood. It's like a Charles Dickens, you know, kind of. Right, right. Yeah, it's wild to think about it in retrospect, but uh, I think they, I think it helped me. I, I hope it did. I, I don't want to read this, but I have to. I, I just hate reading long, but I want to jump right into the article and where it, it talks about my personal stake in a multi, forgive me, multiracial America. There's a yearning embedded in my DNA that a demographic tide will overtake white supremacy. The belief that white people are superior and they should maintain political, social, and economic power over other races. This yearning is not driven by some wish that people of color will someday rule over whites. That's so important. It's a hope. Well, I'm adding it's so important to say that. It's a hope for a more just America, a hope that we can somehow escape the tribalism that tore other countries apart. And then it, you know, it goes on for two more paragraphs, but if you, and I, I won't um, read it, but can you speak to that, please? I thought that was like phenomenal. Well, thank you. Um, uh, it's funny. You, you read that and I was reading that this morning and I put that in at the last minute in the article. And I'm so glad I did because I think, um, I think there's a, a fear among some white people that as the country changes demographically, that black people will do to them what, what, what they did, what some of them did to us, you know, this kind of race revenge. And, and I, and that's not how I think of the future. Um, I think one of the big problems in race is that among some white people, there's this belief, if something helps black people, it must hurt me. And so what I wanted to convey in that passage that you talked about is that when I talk about the yearning uh, for this future where skin color doesn't matter as much. I'm not talking about black people ruling over or brown people ruling over. I'm talking about a real just country where it doesn't matter what your skin color is. It's what you have, your talent, your abilities. Those things will be the things that ultimately define you. And I, I just think that this country, uh, the whole idea behind this country, this noble experiment is a beautiful idea that 
you have all these different races, all these different classes come together and it doesn't matter in the end and that we can be better. And so I just wanted to kind of um, evoke that to kind of address this fear, I think, among some white people that, you know, if the country changes, my life is going to get worse. I'm saying, no, I'll, your life will be better. Our lives will be richer. We have all these people who will contribute all these talents that will make us stronger. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I, I That is so important because you are right. It's like if people of color have more, then there's a perception in the minds of many white people that they will have less. And that we collectively as people of color will then turn the hatred and evil and do horrible things to white people where I can tell you, and and I feel comfortable saying this uh, collectively, that really, that is not the end game, the end game. That is not the end game. We want to have equal footing. And, And when you think about it, just like you said, John, this would be such a rich country. It wouldn't even matter like the first person of color or this white person. It really is about our, the collective, right? Like the patchwork of an amazing quilt. It's about the collective and the patchwork of that amazing quilt. Guess what? It still brings you warmth and comfort. And so if people could wrap their minds around that. Oh, that man. <laughs> well, yeah, I really believe in that. Like, uh, there's a lot of social science experiments that show that the more diverse group you have making decisions, the better decisions you're going to make. If you have a room where there's, where there's only white men making decisions, there that room isn't going to make the same type of quality decisions in a room with people from different perspectives. And so, to me, part of this appeal is not just to the morality of people, like this is the right thing, this is the fair thing, but it's also pragmatism. This is the smart thing. We will be stronger. We will be better. We can take advantage of all these different talents, all these different perspectives that we have. I look at sports. I was thinking about the uh, the uh, the 2012 Olympics, where I remember I was seeing the, the American gymnastics team, the women's gymnastics team. I was looking at the racial makeup. I mean, white, Jewish, children of immigrants, just think of what all those different types of experiences that we drew from to create this winning team. And I think that's what we can do collectively in this country. We have all these different groups, all these different talents. I mean, a lot of countries like Japan, they are dying because they can't attract you know, immigrants or they don't want them. And we can take advantage of that for pragmatic reasons, not just more reasons to be better. So that's what I was trying to convey in that story. Yeah, it's so interesting. In the article, you write, the future of whiteness could rest with Latinos. Could you expand on that? Yeah, I was, uh, I was talking to my wife about that this morning at the breakfast table because Latino people are the second largest ethnic group now. And I really believe that their numbers are growing at such a rate that if you have a significant number of Latino people who to decide in the future that I'm going to identify as white, that's that will be very significant and that could easily happen because there's this belief that white people will be the minority in the future. But what I'm saying in the article, if you have a large number of Latino people who say, I'm no longer Latino, I'm white. Well, whiteness, this idea, the type of whiteness I'm talking about is the type of whiteness that wants to be supreme. That will still be the majority. So that's what I was trying to convey to people. Whiteness is elastic, you know, with, it can it can it can expand to include new people, 
And the thing about it, a lot of Latino people don't like to talk about is there's tremendous anti-black prejudice among Latino people. I see it in my family. I see it. And we saw it in the last election where you had more Latino people voting for Trump than he did in 2016. And people can't like, how can that happen? Well, I can understand how it happened because there's tremendous anti-black prejudice among Latino people. So that's what I was trying to convey is that if we have a large number of Latino people who identify as white, whiteness will still be the majority in the future for a lot longer than we have expected. You know, it's funny that you say that because I was listening, I listened to Howard Stern and I was listening to one of his older shows, probably about from 10 years ago. And there was a guy that uh, had this really amazing barber from Queens and he had done this cool, it doesn't matter what he did, but anyway, he was in the studio and Howard was saying something about the black community. And he's like, oh, I'm not black. And he's like, well, I'm looking at you, you're black. He goes, oh, no, no, I'm Caribbean. He goes, yeah, but you're, you're black. He goes, no, no, I'm not. And Howard was really like genuinely confused. Like, I don't, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like your skin, but so I thought that I'm literally just like two days ago, I heard that. And I'm, I was like, wait, what? And I thought, hold on this. And I thought about your article. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's complex. I mean, even among so-called black people, you talk about Caribbean, there are a lot of Caribbean people who don't really identify with African-Americans. They see African-Americans, people complain too much about racism, who were defined by the slavery experience. I had a, a Jamaican-American who went to my church who looked black to everybody else, but he told black members of our church that, hey, he said, uh, I'm not like you. We threw off our oppressors. You know, he didn't want to really be identified. To me. Yeah, so it's, it's complex when we talk about, you know, race and different people, different groups. It is complex. And I'm wondering for you, because of your skin tone, if it was complex for you growing up. Were you because of being being mixed, right? Having a yeah. white mother. Yeah, it was. But the thing about it, one thing is that, bio- I mean, from a biological point of view, most black African-Americans are mixed right. because of the legacy. Of so I, I didn't stand out so much. You know, there are some mixed people who look white and there are some mixed people like, say, Obama or Jordan Peele. You would just see them as a light skinned black person. So I, what I got teased for more than anything was my complexion. And um, and having people suspecting that I had a white mother because they would see my father was very dark and they said, oh, well, he must have a white mother. And so it, it was a place where uh, white people were just frankly despised. And any reminder or hint that you were associated with white people was looked down upon in a very mean way. So, yeah, I had to I had to deal with that. And it, it was a point when I was a kid where I was ashamed of having a white mother. I wouldn't tell anybody that my mother was white. When I had, when I got forms in my school, they said, your mother's race, I will put black. Or I would, you know, I was just very ashamed. I, I told people I was like a closeted biracial person. You know, I didn't want to tell people that I was biracial. See, it wasn't cool back then when I was growing up to be biracial. Now it's like the cool thing. That's a very interesting intersection when you think about it. When you are multicultural, biracial, you have to take on, you don't have to, but as a kid, it's like you take on both ends of the spectrum based on mm-hmm. the beliefs of your family. And then I think you can be weighed down by that because you don't understand, well, okay, well, why does my, the white part of my family dislike so heavily people of color and want nothing to do with them? And oh, by the way, I'm 
I'm multiracial. And then the people of color on the other side of your family are like, we don't want anything to do with whites. And so I just think that's such a heavy burden for anybody, but especially a kid who doesn't yet have the language or, or the understanding of why that is so. Yeah, that's very well said, Sonny. I mean, because that's what I thought. That's why I said in that story, there's a yearning embedded in my DNA because from a very early age, I just like, is there a way we can get beyond race? Because I literally see it tearing my family apart. And in my neighborhood, there was so much hostility toward whites and, and so much hostility from a white family to black to my black side of my family. So, yeah, that's why I, I, I love this vision of what this country could be when we embrace these differences, when we can get past it. It's something I've wanted since I was ever like a little boy. So let me ask you this question. Mm-hmm. Having witnessed the, the disparities, if you will, in thought and processing with your white family disliking people of color and the people of color in your family disliking the white side, could you understand both sides? Did you understand why people of color had such a disdain for white oh, yeah. people? And then yeah. you could understand why, I, I, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm going to just go ahead and say it. And yeah. then were you able to understand why the white people in your family has such a disdain for people of color? Well, that's an excellent question because I was, I was thinking about that this morning. Um, <laughs> we're, we're in sync. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll try to keep this short. Um, it's very easy to understand if you grow up black in West Baltimore why black people dislike white people. Part of it is because the only white people we saw were people like police officers. I saw white police officers brutalize people in front of me. I saw them humiliate people. Um, and then you never saw white people. Um, so secondly, there was this kind of racial isolation. And when you don't see another group of people, you have stereotypes. So it was easily um, uh, easy to dislike white people. Um, during my whole entire public school career, uh, from Head Start to 12th grade, I only saw one white student ever. And I remember that in high school. We used to see her walking through the halls and we stared at her like she was Bigfoot, like, what are you doing here? So when you have that kind of environment where you see brutality uh, against black people from white police officers, uh, when you see them people being treated certain ways in your own family, and you don't see white people at all, you have that kind of environment where you can grow up with tremendous hostility. And I remember thinking when I was about 16, I thought to myself, what would I do if a white person walked in my neighborhood? This is wild to even admit. But I thought to myself, it would be my duty to attack them. I mean, it's just strange because they don't belong here, you know, but that's yeah. how I thought. And I didn't think that was abnormal at the time mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. most people thought. So that was easy to get. What was harder for me to understand is the racism in my mother's family. And frankly, I had to get older. I had to just mature. And I thought about my mother's, my mother's father who would call my father the N-word, who wanted nothing to do with me. And he didn't also, he also had his own racial uh, isolation. And I think what helped me understand that is that just as I absorbed these, this animosity and these stereotypes about white people growing up, because I had no exposure, my white family did the same. They didn't know any black people. It was a very segregated environment. They didn't know any black people except for the stereotypes. So, 
what was in me, in a sense, was also in them. And I think that helped me to be a little bit more forgiving, a little bit more gracious when they began to reach out to me. I mean, it totally makes sense to me. I mean, I grew up in an all black neighborhood. Yeah. Everything. And I, I grew up in D.C., by the way. So we were we were neighbors uh, okay. extended. And so I didn't have any intimate relationships with anybody outside of people of color, the right. store owners, the attorneys, my, right. my teachers, for the most part, I had a few white teachers, but everything that I knew growing up was a community of people of color. And so right. the white people were on the outside right. and my elders who grew up in the South they had experiences with white people that were not good at all as an adult right. being called boy and gal. And so that's what I understood. Like, wow, white people are just not nice. Right. Because I had right. any exposure myself, except for the few teachers and they were pretty cool. So I, I understand how you can be in a homogenous environment and not have exposure to just based on the experience, the lived experiences of others or what you see on TV. Well, it's interesting. And people listen to the show know this, Sean. I don't know. For me, it was interesting because our neighborhood was mixed, but I, there was just some horrible racist, anti-Semitic white people that were just freaking awful, you know, beat up my brother when he was four and called him Jew boy, filled our mailbox with bees, put an M80 and then Asian family's lawn. So I hung out with the black family. My best friend was Mexican. My other friend, you know, so I felt more comfortable with people of color. It's just interesting, isn't it? How we're shaped and, and, and what we're marinated in. Yeah, that's that's why I really believe uh, we have to find ways to put people in physical proximity toward one another where we are kind of challenged to build up relationships with people we perceive as different. Like, for example, there was a time when a lot more people went into the military and in this country. Um, and I would hear people say, that really helped me when I went into the military. My best friend turned out to be this guy from Tennessee, this white guy from Tennessee, I thought I would have nothing in common with. You know, or back during the Depression, we had the Civilian Conservation Corps. We had these like kind of volunteer groups where all these different people, different backgrounds, different classes would get together. We don't have that as much anymore. We don't have those kind of public spaces that challenge us to get together or even private spaces where we can build up relationships. And I think we have to create that or we're going to tear the country apart. For me, I found that in church. That's where I built up my first relationships with white people where I began to say, well, let me look at them in a more complex way. And I happened to join an interracial church, but I was lucky. I don't know if I, if I would have been able to reconcile, for example, with my white family, if I hadn't first been in this church where I was like seeing white people as human beings for the first time. Wow. Now that's one to grow on. I hadn't even considered that. Again, I grew up in an all black neighborhood, black churches. Everything around me was people of color, like that, period, end of story. And so to be in an interracial faith-based environment to have that exposure and to be in a, in a space, a sanctuary where people really are there for the love of, right? And so you really are looking at your neighbor for the love of, 
not based on skin color. We're all in a space where, you know what, the end goal is to be a better person. That That's amazing. Yeah, and, and, I, and I tell people, like, when I mention it, I'm not saying it in a way where I'm trying to preach to people to convert. You know, it could be any community. Mine was a church. It could be, like I said, it could be the military. I'll give you another example where that those type of relationships um, were formed. I'm a huge music fan, and I love jazz music. And one of the things that happened in jazz music in the early 20th century, you had white jazz musicians who had to step into a black world and learn, and, and, and that changed them. That enhanced their whole outlook. You know, white men like Dave Brubeck suddenly were in a world where white men weren't supreme. Black artists were considered supreme. And that and they had to deal with that. Or in, in sports, Bill Bradley, uh, he talked about being joined in the New York Knicks in the 70s professional basketball team. He was like one of the only white members, uh, one of the few in a team that was dominated by black men. But he said how that enlarges his experience. So I'm saying it could be a church, it could be a baseball team, it could be a stage, but we have to create spaces where those relationships are formed. Because I think you can write all the books about, you know, nice racism, white fragility, how to be an anti-racist, but those are just intellectual ideas. You need places where people form relationships and bond emotionally but things to really change. I hadn't had any real experiences with anybody but people of color growing up. And honestly, it wasn't until I got in the workforce that I actually was able to, uh, as an adult, as a young adult, have experiences and talk to people who were different than me. I grew everything I knew was based on people of color. Everything. I, I, I don't care what store I went to in my community. We had doctors, lawyers, again, store owners. Every store you went in, it, it wasn't Asian. It wasn't white. The, the dry cleaners was black owned. When I tell you everything in my environment was people of color, so again, it wasn't until I got into the workforce that I was able to establish relationships and, and, and create friendships with people who look different from me. I mean, that was for me, I was like, okay, okay, I get it. But I also had some experiences in the workplace that solidified what my elders told me was their lived experience. And I kind of went, went in naive because I'm thinking it's the 1980s. <laughs> you know, things have <laughs> changed. Sure. Yeah. No, ma'am. No, I, I got the shock of my life. So, yeah. That, again, just going back to my first ex- real experience with people who look different than me. So, Sunny, I'd love to know when you made your first white friend and then John for you as well. At work. At, when, at work is when I met my first white, and I when I say friend, I mean, like, we hung out. Right, not just a work No, not just a working relationship. And in fact, she, I'm not going to go into this story, but I will say this. She was really cool. Her mother was a, uh, a nun in a past life, and her dad, I think, was a judge or something. They were really cool. And her she and her parents invited me to go away with them, right? Guess where my, the first place I went with them, Hilton Head, South Carolina. And we played, we, we stayed at some place called the plantation. 
Oh, Atlantics. The, I, I can't even make this up. So I'm like, okay, well, I mean, but you know, when you have like timeshares and things like that, I'm thinking like maybe this is where the timeshare was, but they were no indifference. No, I never felt slighted. I never felt mistreated. But in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm going to go. I had no idea that we were going to stay in a place called the plantation. But for me, I felt something about that. And I think they may have been oblivious. Like they, yeah, I think they were just totally oblivious. Like, you know, she's a sweet girl. We're going to invite her to come. And then another time I went to West Virginia with them. And so, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I just have to laugh. Uh, But, but, and my, my first real white friend's name was Lisa. Oh, Mm -hmm. that's great. So did y'all ever talk about race with your, your friend you went to? With Hilton here? Yeah, we did. And um, I think it's good. You know, I'm, I won't say her last name or anything, but her preference was to date men of color. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't think her parents really appreciated that, though I'd never felt any racism from them. I just felt like her parents were probably like, we should, you know, you know, stay within our <laughs> safe space. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we talked about it a little bit, but not on the level that conversations about race happen now. Okay. Like it just was totally different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Because sometimes I think you can have interracial relationships that are just nice relationships, meaning it's almost like you never really talk about difficult questions. You just kind of keep it at a superficial level so you can say, hey, look at my white friend, or they can say, look at my black friend. But you don't really talk about stuff. You don't really deal with hard issues. So um, it, it's interesting. You yeah, I don't, and I, you know, as I'm thinking back, because we were younger, it was about getting to the next party and hanging out. We're yeah. not really talking about the impact of uh, race and the racial divide. And I will share this really brief story. When we went to yes. West Virginia, we went to this place called the Pokey Dot, right? And it was her family, a large family, and I'm the only person of color at the table. Everybody at the table got their breakfast, except me. And so everybody's eating, and I'm sitting there, and my breakfast never comes. And then the waiter comes back, waitress, waiter comes back. And I'm like, you know, I I didn't get my food yet. Oh, okay. Well, they went. I got it a little later. My food was wrong. Mm. Now, as a, a person of color, I know I'm not going to send this food back and have them do whatever they're going to do to it. So I didn't right. eat breakfast. And they couldn't understand why I didn't eat breakfast. Yeah. Like, oh, absolutely not. Not here in West Virginia at the Pokey Dot. And I didn't get my food until last. And I know it was an oversight. But I don't think they could process that. Because that wasn't their experience. They they didn't recognize what was going on. So, yeah. Wow. Now, for John, for you, you said your first friend, was it at church? Yeah, it was at church. And I I, um, I remember going to a Wednesday night Bible study. And I was new to this church. And I remember going up to this brownstone apartment and looking in the living room window before I rung the doorbell. And I looked in there. And there's nothing but white people. And I just said to myself, oh, I don't want to go in there. I almost like 
was turning, I was about to turn around because I didn't want to be like the only black person in the room. But I went in there and, and I spent a couple months there at that church before I had to go back to school. And I made really good friends with, uh, you know, a young white man my age, two of them, uh, Paul and Andy. And um, that was very useful to me. But I have to say, I think the most, one of the most important relationships I've had with a white person is my mother's sister. Uh, because, mm-hmm. how can I say, I've, I've learned a lot from her because she didn't want anything to do with me and my brother growing up uh, because we were black. And when I met my mom at 17, I didn't, I had to wait about 10 more years before I met her. And so when I met her, I was really angry because in my mind, it was like no excuse for you to have nothing to do with us. And she had all sorts of rationalizations for, as to why she didn't, you know, uh, contact us earlier. But what I've learned is that when she gave me those rationalizations, there was a part of me that wanted to like jump on her. It's like, you're racist. This is wrong. But I didn't. What I did and what she did is that we slowly built up this relationship over the years. We wrote letters to each other back and forth, talking about our lives. And then it got to the point, I started noticing that she was changing. She started admitting that she had issues with race. She started even becoming interested in Black Lives Matter and all these things. And I asked, what happened? What changed her? And one of the things I kind of realized is that I began to say things to her, but she listened to me. And I I felt like the only reason she, I think she listened is because she first knew that I cared for her and I respected her. And for me, that's what I try to keep in mind. Like when you're building up these relationships, you know, particularly as a black person, if you come right out and tell a white person that that's racist, whatever, it, it doesn't work. Too defensive. Shame doesn't cause people to change. It just makes them angry. First, you have to build a relationship. First, you got to show them that you care and respect them. And then they will listen. And that is what has happened to my aunt. But it's also, she has taught me things about myself. It's not like I'm teaching her. She has taught me things about myself. And now when we talk, talk, talk to each other, she calls me family. And she just writes these beautiful letters, you know, just saying how much she loves me. And she's proud of me. But that took years to do. Wow. I mean, when you're talking, John, and I said, I wonder if you're thinking this. I'm thinking of Melvin Gravely. And I'm thinking of Dr. David Camp. Uh, Melvin Gravely the uh, second wrote a great book called Dear White Friend mm-hmm. and it's I think it's phenomenal and if people haven't heard the interview definitely go back not now obviously but go and find that and then Dr. Camp is talking about you have to find that common ground with somebody there's got to be something you yeah. can see eye to eye on right. and then jump into these harder things because if you they feel like they're being attacked where I'm I'm like you're racist fuck you I, we're done mm-hmm. I still struggle with, you know, the Dr. Camp method, even though I know he's right, right? Because I get so angry. Um, but I'm trying because I think it's important if we're going to make s- progress, right? If we want to change things, it- it's it's hard. I just think, the so what you're saying to me, it's like, oh my gosh, I love this. And and you have this real life example, which is so beautiful. And that brought tears to my eyes. You're talking about your aunt. I mean, it's just, it's really something. Yeah, thank you. I was reading letters from her this morning. Um and I was just noticing the evolution of the things she talks about, like a little thing she did, um, because I wondered, is this change genuine or is she just being nice? Is this just like the nice interracial relationship so she can tell her friends, hey, I got a black nephew. We're cool. But um, she told me something she did that really surprised me. Um, you know, my mother's father was very racist. He didn't like black people. So 
She said when she discovered that he was buried in a cemetery that was previously all white, she had decided earlier that she was wanted to be buried next to her father. But when she found that out, she changed her burial plans. She picked another cemetery so she wouldn't be buried next to her father because of the choice he made. She said it just didn't feel right to do that. And she did things like that that were very significant to me that showed a change, you know, admitting things that she was wrong. She didn't know. So it, it, it's good to see it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that was heartfelt. Like, yes. some, that's such a personal decision, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so while to some it may not seem like, well, okay, she, no, that's, that's serious. That's deep, I think. I think yeah. so, too. She's it's kind of weird. She's um uh, she sent me all these personal possessions of her, like like jewelry, all these kind of things. She made me a beneficiary and all you know through insurance and everything. It's kind of weird where she really opened up herself to me. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, this is I'm just being honest mm-hmm. to see it. She would send me these letters, but I would be so angry as a black journalist covering things like uh, George Floyd, the riots. I really wouldn't open her letters. I wouldn't open them because I'm like, I just don't want to hear another white person rationalize racism or be in denial. I just don't want to deal with it. But one day I did something that made me realize that uh, maybe I should give her a second chance. And I start opening these letters and then this whole new person that I didn't expect kind of poured out of the letters. Like, I'm sorry, here are pictures. Here's, you know, you're the beneficiary of this. You know, if you, if you don't want to call me aunt, that's totally fine. You won't hurt my feelings. I can understand why you're bitter. I never saw that before because I was too angry to see it. Life and evolution. Yeah. And evolution and grace, extending grace, not just to yourselves, but to the other person because they too have lived experiences whether it's through their elders or whether it's through a personal experience that has happened. And again, just going back to what Lisa said, especially uh, for Dr. Camp, finding the common ground. That's so important because I think we're more alike than we are different. If people would just hold conversations, you know, start with the, Hey, how, how are you? I mean, it might shock the other person for a moment, or I love what you have on, or you just something. And then you will realize, wow, we had that in common. Yeah. We have a lot more in common than people think we're at the end of the day, we're all human and the experiences are human experiences. And we have decided we, as in society have decided that things are going to be segmented by race. And that just, right. that's just a breakdown. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to go back to the article for a minute because I think, I love the title. How did you come up with that? White supremacy with the tan. I just My editor didn't like it. I had to really? respond. Yeah. I love I it. Persuade him to go with it. He said, that makes sense. I said, no, man, this is like, this will stick. Um, I was thinking about Latin America when I'm, I was writing about this. I was saying this is such a complex subject to explain to people, particularly if you're not familiar with Latin America, how in Latin America countries, you have all this racial mixing. You have all these interracial unions and people like in Cuba, Brazil, say we're beyond race. But if you really know, they ain't beyond race. There's tremendous racism. And I was thinking to myself, they have white supremacy in Latin America. It's just with the tan. That's mm-hmm. the 
Just go with that. It's just a browner version of white supremacy. And that's what I think is a very, I don't know if that was a very good chance, but that's a distinct possibility what we could have in the future. We could just have, like I said, there'll be cosmetic changes in race. Mm-hmm. There'll be racial couples, browner people in power. But if you still have this racial hierarchy where people who are perceived as darker skin, so-called blacker, they're perceived as inferior, and those who are perceived as more Anglo looking at the top, it'll still be the same old thing, white supremacy. I know, right? So, so depressing. Here's my question. When we, when we talk about uh, complexions and the lighter the complexion, I, this is just um, <laughs> mind-boggling for me. Um, it's not just uh, Latin America, people of color. When you think about the continent of Africa, and African women bleaching their skin. When you think about the Asian community, and I'm talking about people who are already fair, but using uh, cosmetics to to whiten their skin. So this is a global issue. It's not, I mean, yes, it's here deep in America, but this is a global issue when you start thinking about the complexion of your skin and the mindset that people have taken on. Like, did, did this all really start? Because I don't know where it started, so I'm just guessing. I, like, I give you an idea where it started. Okay, please. And, and, I, and I give you this idea, I will kind of address something that Lisa just said, she said this is depressing. Because when you think about how adaptable white supremacy is, it can be really depressing. But a lot of this pretty much has started because it's a legacy of colonialism and slavery. This is what I talk about in my article. You had about, what, 500, 600 years ago, Western Europeans started to sail around the world and to conquer countries throughout South America, Africa, and Asia. So how do you justify enslaving fellow human beings? Well, you have to make them less than fellow human beings. You have to make them subhuman. And they fastened on race. They created a whole notion of race that, well, if you have this skin color, you're so-called black and you're therefore inferior. And so that's what they use to justify the brutality. But there's hope in that because as people tell me, race, at least in the modern sense, is a very recent invention. You know, we don't have to always still see it this way. It can change because it wasn't always this way. A guy told me, a historian told me, like, if you went to ancient Greece and Athens, they would notice that you were darker or lighter, but they wouldn't automatically assume you were more inferior because you were darker. That came later. And he said, just as once people believed that Earth was flat, and now people look at them like, oh, the Earth is round, that we can one day see race that same way. Particularly with all this DNA testing and everything, we know that race isn't real from a scientific point of view. We can get to the point where people realize this stuff about race, it's all a sham. It's a charade. Yeah, it's all social construct. And and PBS has a three-part series called uh, Race, the Illusion of Power, which I think is phenomenal. And it's very enlightening for people to understand the social construct of race. Like it's not a real thing, right? Yeah. It's and a so, biological fiction. Yeah, the whole yeah, idea. Of, it's, yeah. it's not a real thing, but it, it also goes to show you the power of managing or manipulating someone's mind. Even, I don't care how fair you are. Just in other cultures, you still want to be more 
thick, like white pasty makeup to make yourself white. Like, I just, I don't know if that, I think in some instances it may go back to self-esteem because again, if I'm not light enough, I'm not accepted. It just, yeah, I know it's a whole different show and a whole other conversation, but it's mind blowing to me. Yeah. I think it should be pointed out that there are, I don't know how you want to call it, but pragmatic reasons. A lot of times people want to look whiter in places like Asian countries in Africa. And this is what I point out in the article. There are social economic benefits in certain places from looking whiter. You know, if you're in Cuba and everything, if you look whiter, you have a much chance, better chance of getting education, certain type of jobs, certain type of spouse. I've always like looked back on, on what happened to me growing up in West Baltimore. I've never really said this publicly, just to friends in private, but I've, I've felt at times that being light-skinned, not being as not as threatening as a dark, large black man has helped me, be, you know. So people do these things, lighten themselves, because they want a better life for their children for themselves, too, because the way the system is set up. It doesn't make it work. Fortunately, I have to agree with you. Yeah, it doesn't I make it work, but understand, it's, it's a lot of different reasons people do these things. Yeah, that's true. There's this whole trend I was looking at that I'm not into makeup, but I was watching these things on Instagram and there's this like nose thinning, like obsession. It's insane. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they're like, this is how you shade your nose to make it look thinner. And it's just like this whole thing. And there's like millions of these videos and they all look, they end up looking like weird dolls. I'm like, I don't, you know, it's like, God forbid you have a broad nose, you know, like it's just so ingrained and it's, it's just terrible. It's just, yeah. again, that whitening and narrowing. and yeah. But, you know, I, I see that changing. I, I mean, maybe I can tell you. In, in popular culture, I see women that are darker, you know, and models and their hair texture. We're seen as beautiful, desirable, and sexy. I think it's beautiful to see that. Yeah, that is true. And the curvier shape, too. I like that. I want to know, like, in your article, I mean, what does real racial progress look like? Or what do you think it would look like? Like, that's a oh, huge that's- question to me. I'm like, and maybe we yeah. don't even have enough time in this show. <laughs> well, I, I can answer Cliff Notes version. Um, I think the only way we have real racial progress is through what I call, and others call, radical integration. Meaning, we can't really have racial progress if we're, like, physically apart. Uh, we can't have it where you have our residential neighborhoods, our schools, uh, so segregated. I mean, we're still very segregated. Um, and we have to find a way to live, like, literally together. Now, when you use the word, like, integration, that's like, oh, people roll their eyes because, like, we tried that, didn't work. Look what happened with busing. And the reason I say radical is that it's different than a traditional integration where you just took black bodies and you shipped them to a white school and white parents got upset, and that was the end of that. I mean, radical integration is more where, you know, black people can go in these kind of settings. They don't have to stop being black. They can still be themselves. They can bring their own norms. Uh, radical integration is about sharing of power and resources, where you just don't take kids and put them in a certain school. You make sure all schools have equal funding. They shouldn't be funding primarily through property taxes. So rich schools get more money, and a poor school in my neighborhood in West Baltimore gets fewer. So that's what I think we need something like radical integration, meaning or integration we never really tried before. I agree. And I also believe that some way, somehow, 
we have to get rid of race. Yeah, I agree. And I think people say that because some people mean do it, do it before we get justice. I think you have to get, how can I say? There's some people who say, don't look at race now. They say we should get rid of race now. But for some of them, I think they meaning they mean don't look at racial disparities. Don't look at certain things because I don't see race. I think, but I, I think ultimately down the road, that's where we, we, we have to get there. Because, I mean, yeah, and I say that actually in an article of white supremacy with the tan, we have to ultimately get rid of race, but we also, but we have to do things first, I think, before we get there. And a lot of that has to do with getting justice. I agree. One thousand percent. I would love for you to come back and, and, you know, we can do a whole show on that. I think that getting justice is so incredibly important in that conversation. I want to let people know, too, that just Google John Blake white supremacy with a tan. This is a must read article. Well, John, was there anything you wanted to add today? Well, very minor plug. Uh, this is something in the future, but these things I talked about with you, with my family, I'm actually writing a memoir about it and it's supposed to come out in 2023. Oh. So that's what I'm, I'm yeah. trying to, that's why I'm, I, a lot of these things are in my mind. Um, so I hope I'm doing this. Uh, my deadline is next year. And um, it's supposed to come out in 2023. So I hope to talk about these things from a more personal point of view, uh, hopefully in the future. That's exciting. Wonderful. Congratulations. As yeah, congratulations are in order. So, John, how do we find you and your wonderful work? I have a website, johnkblake.com. Uh, and then you can just Google me or in CNN. You'll see my article. CNN has a page for me. I think yeah, it's pretty easy. Yeah. I mean, not every week I'm, am I doing a white supremacy with the tan. I mean, because that's a major story. But I tend to do those stories on a pretty semi-regular basis. Okay, cool. Yeah. So you cover all types of topics then? Yeah, race, race, religion, and politics. But so much has been about race. but And so much has been about politics. But I really am very much interested in religion, particularly when it intersects with race. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking to get back into religion. I've, I have a specialty in that too. And I really want to write about uh, white evangelicals and what's been happening with them. So I'll get into that soon. Yes. We'll have to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, I have strong opinions. I've been members of white evangelical churches. And so I, I see how a lot of them deal with and deny race. And I want to kind of write about that. And a lot of people forget there are tremendous, there are tremendous amount of black and brown evangelicals. It's like when you say evangelical, you just think white. Right. There are plenty of evangelicals or people of color. And my my theory is that there, I think there's a schism now between brown and black evangelicals and white evangelicals because of Trump in the last couple of years. There's this like split going on right now. Right. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to have you back. <laughs> That's such an interesting, I know I, I'm, I'm terrible. You say evangelicals, <laughs> I just make a face because I picture all the white Trumpy ones, you know? Like that's where my brain goes to. Well, if you want to find me, you can find me at Lisa Davis MPH, uh, primarily on Instagram, a little bit on Twitter. And if you want to see lots of pictures of my Pitbull Blue and I cuddling, walking at the ocean, <laughs> it's almost like he's my partner. Don't tell my husband. No, I'm joking. Anyway, and stuff about the show, of course. And Sunny. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Instagram. It's sunny days. And as I say, every week, you know, cooking poodles life, but the real juice is on active allyship dot podcast on Instagram. And, you know, I say to our Facebook 
family that we are on Facebook as well, Active Allyship. It's uh, more than a hashtag. All right. Well, thank you so much, John. I can't wait to have you back. This was fantastic. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Sonia. You asked some really good questions. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tell your friends and family. This is really important, and we want to get the word out. So glad that you're listening. Please keep coming back. Also, follow us on Instagram at activeallyship.podcast. Thank you so much.